Good evening and welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm glad you could join us uh, this good Friday. Uh, for those of you joining us online, welcome as well. And I would extend the invitation to all to join us on Sunday for Easter, especially for the uh, fellowship meal uh, to follow. Um, I know I had turkeys for Christmas. Uh, I'll have ham um, for not a whole lot of ham, not as much ham as I did turkey on Christmas, but I'll have ham. Um, and I've actually never cooked ham before, but I feel like it's pretty hard to screw up. So I think we should be good with the, with the ham there. Um, you can always put it in the microwave if it's not hot enough. Um, but please join us for that. Uh, before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for this evening, for us to gather, for us to reflect on the events 2,000 years ago, close to 2,000 years ago, on what your Son did for us. Father, help this night to be a night of reflection, meditation, conviction, and encouragement. May we go from here more equipped, more edified, to glorify you in all that we do, Father, to be the witnesses of your word, of your holiness that you call us to be. So help us to pay attention this evening, help us to stay focused, to hear your voice, help us to stay humble and contrite, and may your spirit teach and encourage us this evening. We ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Please open to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, if you have not already. If you need a Bible, they are under the seats around you. For Good Friday this year, I want us to consider, why did Christ die? Essentially, why is today, Good Friday, considered good if our Lord and Savior died? And do not think that this message will focus on what is often presumed to be the answer. It will go beyond that. It will go where most of American evangelicalism fails to go. See, Christ didn't suffer and die to merely pay a debt. There was a purpose to all of it. There was a purpose to him to pay that debt, a purpose that could not be achieved unless the debt was first paid. And we dishonor God when we fail to see the why of it all. And this is where our passage in Peter comes into play. So let's go ahead and read our passage in its entirety. And, and the passage is 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. Uh, after we read the passage in its entirety, we will then take it verse by verse. So again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The first thing that we must address is, what is Peter referring to when he says, to this you have been called? What have you and I been called to that Peter is speaking of? 
Well, to answer that question, we must understand the context of the passage. And our passage finds itself in the midst of Peter teaching Christians, both slaves and free, to be submissive to the government and then to submissive to their masters. On the other side of our passage, Peter continues that, that teaching of submission as it relates to husbands and wives. But it's what precedes our passage, not what follows, that gives us our answer. In the midst of Peter teaching Christians to be submissive to their masters, Peter tells them to do so with respect and with honor. Not only with good masters, but in verse 18, even with unjust masters, ones that would treat them unfairly or harshly. He goes on to speak of the witness that such lives provide and how God views such faithful service, which is explicitly stated in verses 19 through 20, where Peter says, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And this isn't restricted to only those who are actual slaves, but this principle carries over to all who are under any kind of authority. Thus, in verse 21, when Peter says, to this you have been called, he is speaking to all believers, meaning that we all have been called to good, faithful service. And if you suffer, even unjustly, continue on, endure through it. This keeps with Peter's theme of his epistle, which he spells out for us in 1 Peter 2.12, where he writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When Peter uses the word call here in verse 21, he's telling us that this is the ordained path for believers, to do good while suffering. See, suffering is not some sort of hiccup. It's not a speed bump in the road of salvation. Nor is it, as one commentator put it, a detour along the way to our inheritance. Suffering is the path, the road ahead that leads to salvation, that leads to the, to the celestial city, to the kingdom. The road ahead, it is paved with suffering. If your road lacks suffering, you're on the wrong road. And this isn't just Peter. See, we see this teaching in all four of the Gospels. We see this in most of the letters of the New Testament because this is the plain teaching of Scripture. Anyone who tries to sell you the idea that our faith leads to a, a life or a path of comfort and prosperity without suffering, void of those things, is a wolf, a false teacher, and ought to be marked and avoided. Now, this doesn't mean that we go out looking for suffering. Peter isn't saying that we run towards martyrdom. That's not the point. That's not what he is teaching. The suffering that Peter speaks of here and what God speaks of elsewhere this kind of suffering, it finds you. It will come for you. It's the tribulation of a fallen world that hates that its evil, its deeds are being called out for what they are, evil and sinful. It's been once, it's, as it's once been said, if you've never run into the devil, it's because you're running in the same direction as the devil. And some believers will suffer far less than others. Some may suffer like Job, some may suffer like Peter. Meanwhile, others may suffer like Abraham or like John. 
regardless of how one may suffer, one must be faithful. One must continue. One must endure in holiness. And why does Peter say this? Why does Peter encourage his people on to faithfulness even when they are being treated harshly and unjustly? Even when God will look at the situation and go, you're right. What you're suffering, it is unjust. It is an injustice. It is not fair to you, but yet you should still live honorably, faithfully, good, seek to glorify God through all this. Why would Peter say this? Why does he make the claim that this is our calling? Well, he points, he points us to the author and the perfecter of our faith, Christ. He says, because of Christ, verse 21, because he too, he also suffered and he did so for you. He did so for you as an example, right? He didn't just do so as for you as if you don't need to know about it. He did so for you as an example, meaning there is a purpose to it. And that purpose is that you would follow in his footsteps. And this isn't new to Peter. Jesus himself made this clear before he even suffered. Mark 8, 34, he calls the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 10, 38, 39, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. In other words, whoever tries to save it, whoever tries to keep his life, preserve it, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, they will find it. When we consider Good Friday, and we consider what happened on Good Friday, so many years ago, we ought to consider the path of our own lives, the road that we are on, the orientation of it, the destination to which we are intending to go. Because what Good Friday represents is not merely a, a doorway, it's not merely a gate, but it is the road less traveled. It is the narrow way. Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is the map that leads us to the promised resurrection. In other words, if you want to enter into the celestial city, you yourself, when you look at Christ on the cross on Calvary, you must see yourself there with him. You must be willing to go outside the city. You must be willing to suffer scorn and rejection and be reviled as your Lord and Savior was. With Christ being such an example for us, Peter then goes on to expound on the example that Christ is. In verse 22, Christ, though he suffered, he suffered as a sinless man. He had no sin. You, on the other hand, you are not so innocent. No human in all of eternity outside of Jesus is innocent, whether in the womb or not. The only one who was innocent was Christ, and he suffered because of that. He has suffered the greatest injustice of all by suffering as a guilty man when indeed he was anything but guilty. Yet, he did so willingly and faithfully. In verse 23, Peter goes on and says, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile back. And when he suffered, he did not respond with threats or violence. He was the lamb of Isaiah 53 that was led to the slaughter. And if you're familiar with the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, uh, this passage in Peter sounds a lot like it because Peter is pulling language from it. 
And Peter tells us why Christ was able to do what he did. Why, though he was completely innocent, and why, even though he was the son of God, and he was being treated the way he was being treated, he was able to do so peacefully and faithfully, without falling into sin, or without striking against those causing such suffering and sorrow. It was because of his faith. See, Jesus had entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Now, it wasn't just that himself that Jesus entrusted, right? Jesus isn't merely concerned about his own fate, but the fate of his enemies, the fate of those who are unjustly causing harm upon him. In the English, it says Jesus entrusted himself, or while entrusting himself, but the himself actually isn't there in the Greek. The actual object to which Jesus is entrusting is not there. It's, it's, it's implied, it's, it's assumed. And, and I think himself, that, that's a fine translation as long as we understand that when Jesus is entrusting himself, we see it going beyond his physical self, beyond his immediate situation. If we look at that and we understand it to be his whole sphere of life, that's Peter's intention. That's what Peter is getting at. Jesus was entrusting not only himself, but the fate of his enemies. He was entrusting the justice of the situation, which at the time was an injustice. He was trusting that God would handle all of it and his perfect justice by his perfect mercy according to the hearts of those involved. And Jesus does this because he knows, as Scripture teaches, what Paul tells us in Romans 12, 19, 21, where Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is, as we are currently talking about in Hebrews 11, it is by faith that Jesus is able to endure the cross as he did. He knows the one who knows all things. And he knows the one who knows all things will one day judge all things in accordance to his perfect justice. No man, woman, or child will be judged unjustly or imperfectly. And all will be judged by their deeds and words which bear witness to their hearts. In verse 24, Peter concludes expounding on the example of Jesus' suffering by reminding his people what they already know. And he uses language that's similar to Isaiah 53, verse 4. And, and to remind ourselves, let's read Isaiah 53, verse 4. Isaiah writes, Surely he, he's talking about the suffering servant, prophesying about Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So here in verse 24, Peter, using similar language, says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is, Jesus withstood the weight of our sin. Not just your sin, but the sin of the person next to you. He withstood the weight of the world's sin, as John the Baptist tells us in John 1. The weight of the curse personally was upon him, and he did so physically in the flesh. In other words, the Son of God suffered greatly for you because of your sin. And Peter uses the word tree here intentionally instead of the word cross. He's calling to mind the curse of Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. 
where, where Scripture says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that Yahweh your God has given you for an inheritance. Now, it's not that Peter thinks Jesus is a guilty man, as if there is guilt upon him. Obviously, Peter just mentioned in the two verses before, he's a sinless man. That, that he, it's not his guilt he's, he's bearing, it's our guilt. But that's the point that Peter is making. Here is your innocent man, the, the sinless man, but yet he suffered the death of a guilty man. He suffered the death of one who was sinful. He suffered the death of a cursed man by hanging on a tree. But it was for a purpose. And notice how Peter orders this. See, normally the church focuses on the, either the first part of verse 24 or the last part of verse 24. Right, where it says our wounds being healed. That, that is, that they focus on our reconciliation. I saw, I saw one Facebook post today from uh, a nearby uh, Christian school, and they used 1 Peter 2.24. Excellent verse. And they highlighted the first part and the last part, which is, which is fine. But it goes to show the, the, the tendency that we have on what we focus on. We focus on our debt being paid, of us being reconciled, but not its intended effect. Why that's so significant. Why that matters. See here, Peter's focus isn't reconciliation. His focus isn't on us being healed. It is part of it, but it's not his focus. His focus is holy living. Let's look at verse 24 again. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree. Well, why would he do that? He tells us that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then, he says, by his wounds you have been healed. The intended effect, the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is why he died. He died for sin so that we would die to sin, so that we would live to righteousness. He didn't die so we could remain in sin. If we talk about reconciliation, our debt being paid, but yet we continue to persist in sin, we just, like we just saying just moments ago, about how he takes away our sin. Well, what good is that if we continue on in our sin? What good news is that if we love our sin? We don't want him to take it away if we love our sin. You, you see the hypocrisy that exists there? The, the believer, the one who loves God, is going to be like, thank you, take my sin away, please take it away, I don't want it anymore. But we often forget this. And again, it's because we're fallen, sinful creatures. This is why we need the gospel daily. It's why we need the gospel on Sundays and every day of the week because we need to be reminded of our temptation and our willingness to love our own sins and our own vices. Good Friday isn't good because Jesus reconciled us to the Father. And because of what he has done, we, we're able to enjoy our passions and desires of our flesh without a reckoning. That's not why it's good. Right? We all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we need to remember that. All of us will give account for what we have done and said or not done and not said. Good Friday is good because Jesus has made it possible for us to receive new life. He has made it so that we could be united with him, not only in his death, but in his resurrection right Romans 6 so that we may walk in newness of life 
so that we may be the walking sacrifice of Romans 12. He calls us to be these living sacrifices as we die to self daily and follow him. And again, to the person who loves God, this is good news. For the one who loves God desires God. Thus they desire righteousness. They desire holiness. Because only in holiness and righteousness will you have God. Can you be with him? And the one who loves God despises their sin. The one who loves God desires not merely to avoid their just judgment. It's not like, well, at least I get out of hell. No, I want to be with God. That's who I want to be with. And his grace, not in his wrath, right? When you go to, go to hell, he's there. His wrath, his judgment is there, so he's there. And when you go into eternal life, everlasting righteousness, and into heaven, on, and eventually on the new earth, the goodness of God is there, and that's what you desire. But if you don't desire his goodness now, you're not going to want it then. If you love your sin more now, you're not going to love him then. This is why Good Friday is good. And it's only made possible by the Son of God healing us of our sinful nature, by restoring us in right relationship to the Father who by the blood of his Son has transferred us from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. In doing so, God has freed us from the bondage of sin and of the devil and has made us co-heirs with Christ. And in order for us to live this reality out, in order for us to live in this newness or walk in the newness of life, we must know and understand that we are well, that we are no longer sick, that we are no longer unclean. This is why Peter ends verse 24 by saying, by his wounds you have been healed. And again, this language refers us back to Isaiah 53.5 where Isaiah writes, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, this isn't about physical healing, right? Just as there are many false prophets out there, false teachers that like to say, this is about us being able to be physically healed. This is not it. Just as much as the physical healings of Christ during his earthly ministry were not about us being able to heal people. It was about Christ having the authority to forgive sins, as well as being a marker of who he is, the promised Messiah. It is hard to live a life of righteousness when you think you are still unclean, when you think you are still unwell, when you think that you can't enter into the Holy of Holies or draw near the throne of grace because you know or you think yourself to be unclean. An elephant who is chained as a baby never knowing freedom when full-grown, though powerful enough to pull the stake out of the ground, will remain near the stake because the elephant doesn't know any better. The elephant doesn't realize the power that they have and they've been conditioned to think, I can't pull this out. It's the same for us. And Peter is reminding us that we are no longer enslaved to sin because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We are no longer under the bondage of the devil. We have been healed. Thus, live like it. No longer do we need to wait for the prayer of David in Psalm 51 to be answered. Especially verses 10 through 12 where David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, the blood of Christ has answered that prayer. It has done this. We have been cleansed. 
our consciences have been perfected by his shed blood permanently, forever. And it's not by our works, but by his work. And his spirit, the comforter, the helper, he is in us forever. He will never depart us because we're under the new covenant. The, the, the new covenant joy that Christ has ushered in by his body offered on the cross answers the prayer of David in Psalm 51. And this all happened on Friday 2,000 years ago. And it happened by God's grace and by the blood of Christ. Therefore, sin no longer has dominion over you. And you are no longer estranged from the Father. Maybe you committed a sin today and you feel unclean. You can't unclean yourself. Now once you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, you, you, you can repent and you can repent because the blood of Christ cleanses you. Your repentance does not clean you. The blood cleans you. The repentance is made possible because of the blood. Without the blood, your repentance is just smearing sin everywhere. Your, your, your righteous works just are filthy rags. There's no clean, cleansing going on. But by the blood, you are clean. You will remain clean. Thus, you can go to the throne of grace, draw near to God with confidence boldness, assurance, with freedom, with joy, rejoicing, gratitude, all those things because of Christ. Because you are no longer estranged from the Father. Eden is no longer off limits to you. The throne room of God is now your sanctuary. And this, again, is why we can rejoice in all things. This is why we can be grateful in all things. This is why we can pray without ceasing because of this day. This is why we can endure anything that this world throws at us because we have all that we need. We can be poor and impoverished. We can have blessings. We can be cursed in this life, but we have Christ. We have the kingdom. We have God. We have eternity. And it's all because of what happened on Friday 2,000 years ago. This is why this day, which is truly and eternally good, is a day for us to rejoice as well as to consider how are we living? Are we living in right response to what God has called us to? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your reminding truth, uh, the gospel that you give us through your word, we thank you that you had uh, Peter write it down so many years ago and that you preserved it and that your spirit still speaks to us today through it. Father, help us to search our lives, help us to ask ourselves and, and to be honest. How is our life oriented? Are we following Christ faithfully? Are we willing to endure whatever suffering that might bring? Do we understand the joy that the work that your son has accomplished on the cross, do we understand the joy that brings? Father, help us to, to be faithful in this. Help us to not only live this out as individuals, but as a body. May we as a body keep this in mind as we endure and forbear and love one another and serve one another. Help us to encourage one another on this path. Help us not to be alone on this. Help us uh, to reach out when we need help and help us to seek those who need help whether they ask for it or not. Help us to keep one another in prayers and 
Help us to be the faithful witness you call us to be to those who have yet to come to the saving grace, the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. May your spirit work powerfully in our lives, especially this holy weekend. May you use this weekend, this, this time of reflection and meditation for, for many who otherwise would not give you a second thought. May you use it, Father, for your glory. May your name be proclaimed powerfully this weekend in all the churches that are faithful to your word. And may your kingdom grow all the more. Father, we ask all of these things for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, Dave will lead us in one more song of worship.